live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophies. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. I know I don't do this nearly as much as I should, but I want to start this episode by thanking all of you for your support and for organically helping to build the Jamel Hill is Unbothered community. Now, thank you for the positive replies that you leave on the Spotify app under every episode of the podcast, which I try to publicly post. Thanks to the over 200,000 of you that follow the podcast on Spotify. And thank you for telling a friend to do the same as well as listen to the podcast in its entirety. I get so much joy, so much encouragement when people stop me on the street and tell me how much they enjoy the podcast. Matter of fact, it just happened the other day when I was walking to get my nails done. A woman stopped me while I was waiting at the light to cross over to the other side of the road. And she told me how much she enjoyed Jamel Hill is Unbothered and how she got a friend of hers turned on to it too. So thank you so much. Now, let's get it started with the word of the week, which is submersible just give me a second to speak it's the word of the week yeah i swear i'm not trying to be funny but i had never heard that word until last week when a submersible which is an underwater craft that is designed to be completely submerged and used for research and exploration real quick if you thought as i did ain't that the same thing as a submarine Apparently, there's a difference, and the difference is a submarine can launch itself into the ocean from a port independently, while a submersible does not have the power to get to port, the bottom of the ocean, and back. Now, if you're wondering why am I on some Jacques Cousteau shit right now, it's because a submersible carrying five people in the area of the Titanic wreck in the North Atlantic went missing. Apparently, since 2021, a private company named OceanGate has provided tours of the Titanic. Guests have paid up to $250,000 to travel to the wreckage, which is about 12,500 feet below the ocean's surface. According to reports, the submersible was lost in an area about 900 miles east of Cape Cod. Now, I don't know about y'all, but the way my nerves, anxiety, claustrophobia, and blackness are set up, if money were no object, and had someone approached me with the opportunity of going on an exploration mission to see the Titanic wreckage, it would have been the fastest hell gnaw in history. I'm straight just watching Titanic on demand and clowning old girl for watching Leonardo DiCaprio freeze while she was snug up on that raft or mattress or whatever that was. That was fucked up, but I digress. Anyway, the more details I read about this submersible, which is called Titan, the more I realize that sometimes Human beings really have to be stopped from creating things that ultimately will lead us to our own demise. Apparently, the way this vessel operates is that it's piloted with a video game controller and guided to the Titanic shipwreck by text messages. So wait a minute. They're operating an imitation submarine with an Atari joystick and a Boost mobile phone. What in the bootleg Aquaman shit is this? I saw one expert on television who said that more people have been to outer space than to the depth of this part of the ocean. I saw pictures of the Titan, and let me tell you, 
That shit looked like a bloated ass 96 Impala. It is an unregulated operation that only holds a maximum of five people who have only 96 hours of oxygen while on board. Listen, I'm praying that by the time this podcast airs, these people have been found safe and sound despite the immense challenges to conducting this kind of search. But sometimes there are sites and mysteries that weren't meant to be commercialized. It's why those flights to space and the possible emergence of a real space travel industry always made me very uncomfortable. Some shit we just ain't meant to see. Submersible, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. This episode, I'm putting myself and all of you all who are listening on the therapist couch because I have the pleasure of speaking with one of the foremost authorities on mental health, specifically mental health among black women. She started a thriving mental health community called Therapy for Black Girls, which also is the name of her podcast. She has dedicated her life to improving the mental health of black women, and her work has been featured in Essence, The Oprah Daily, Women's Health, The New York Times, and several other publications. In preparation for this interview, I read her amazing new book, Sisterhood Heals, The Transformative Power of Healing in Community, which is being released this week. It's an incredible read that really explores the benefits of black women's sister circles and just how important these sister circles are to us establishing a healthy approach toward our mental health. Her book made me feel affirmed, refreshed, and it gave me such a grounded and different outlook on my sister friendships. Anyway, we're going to talk about this new book and how this woman from a one caution light town in Louisiana became one of the leading psychologists in the country. And I highly encourage you to check out therapyforblackgirls.com, buy this book. And if you go to therapyforblackgirls.com, you will find an array of mental health resources for black women. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, or Dr. Joy for short. Dr. Joy, I could spend two hours of this podcast on your book, Sisterhood Heals, which I was very fortunate to get an advanced copy of in preparation for this interview. I read it. It's fabulous. I mean, I have dog-eared so many pages in this. I got, I got notes. I got all kind of <laughs> stuff that I wrote because it was so much about this book, about sisterhood and communal healing that spoke to me. But we are going to dive super deep into that in just a moment. But to kick off this podcast, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every single guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? Ooh, I love this question that you ask because you get such a variety of answers. Um, you know, I feel like I have been unbothered for a very, very long time. But I think if I can trace it to one particular moment, it was my training in grad school. So I was fortunate enough to have two Black major professors. And so when I told them I wanted to study Black graduate students, I didn't get any pushback, right? And so I really feel like not only did I not get pushback, but they also really affirmed my decision to study Black people and like mental health needs of Black students. Um, and, and so I feel like I can trace like the work I do now with Therapy for Black Girls and Sisterhood Heals to that environment that really kind of nourished and nurtured um, my interest in the specificity in studying Black communities. 
there's a lot of things that are interesting about your your background, but I want to start in the town you were born in. It's a city I've never heard of. I mean, I'm sure you're used to that. Paint Courtville. Is that correct? Indeed. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Paint Courtville, Louisiana. Where is this in the boot? Oh, my gosh. So it is southern Louisiana. So it is in between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. So for those of you who are familiar with the I-10 corridor, it is off I-10. Okay. So you didn't grow up in a one stoplight town. You grew up in a one caution light town. <laughs> so what was it like growing up there in a town that is that small? Uh-huh. So it, in a lot of ways, it was very communal, right? So my dad is a photographer. And so he is kind of like the community, the town photographer. So everybody kind of knew him and my family, um, which meant that like we were connected to a lot of people, but also we couldn't get away with a lot, right? Because there were always people paying attention. And they're like, oh, I'm going to talk to your parents about that. Um, So I feel like it was really a community that was wrapped in a lot of love. And I feel like, you know, neighbors looking out for one another, very, very small town, as you mentioned. Like it feels like we just knew a lot of people. And so I really feel like in a lot of ways that, again, has nourished my love of community and kind of paying attention to what's happening and people watching because it feels like there was always something happening. So in your book, you kind of start there where you talk about the community of seeing your your aunts sitting around on the porch and talking and you being the nosy kid trying to ear hustle, as all of us have done whenever (laughs) there's adult conversation in the room, even if we don't actually understand it. And as you say, throughout the book, everything starts with childhood, which I had to laugh at because um, my therapist, the very first thing she said to me in our very first session a few years ago was childhood lasts forever. And that is what she meant, a similar sentiment that you express. So um, as you were growing up and seeing this community and being a part of this community around you, what did it leave you with in terms of what community is supposed to mean? So, you know, in the book, I talk about like my mom has six sisters um, and I also have like 30 plus first cousins. A lot of them are girls. And so I feel like like just being in the loving embrace of women and like women's laughter, um, the way that black women talk with one another, the way that black women support one another. I feel like that was really nurtured in those conversations that I was ear hustling in on the porch. Um, and I really felt like there was always somebody to support me. Right. So if my mom couldn't come to like some kind of school activity, I would definitely have an auntie would be there or my grandmother would be there, right? So it it really kind of felt like I was raised by a village of women and, you know, my aunts and uncles and cousins and all of those people. It felt very much like I was a part of a big, big village. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because there was, I forget what page it's on. I know I have an earmark, but you basically wrote that the community experience is more familiar to our community than the opposite experience, the individual experience that I think this country is basically rooted in. Individualism is what this country is very much rooted in. But for a lot of us, that is not actually our experience or really not even our default. So as you were progressing in your study uh, of psychology, uh, at what point did you realize that this was a healing source? It was beyond just, you know, friendships and family relationships, but this could be a real healing source, especially for black women. 
Mm-hmm. So like I mentioned, you know, my my dissertation as a part of my doctoral work was on the impact of participating in a Black Graduate Student Association on mental health. And so I think in a lot of ways, I have known for a long time that like being around like-minded individuals and having people that you could go to when times were tough or that could really help you like, you know, stay away from the landmines in an academic department, like all of those things were really, really important as your in as a part of your survival as a grad student. And I think when I got to Virginia Commonwealth University, so I had an internship as a part of my doctoral program, I actually got the opportunity to learn how to do group therapy. And then I had language for all of the things that I had been seeing kind of play out in in other areas of my life. And so I really feel like learning that kind of um, more technical pieces and like how to keep a group moving and what facilitation even looks like really gave me the knowledge to back up all of the things that I had been observing in everyday life. You developed the Therapy for Black Girls uh, platform, your online platform, which has been hugely successful. According to what I read, it was sparked by you watching Black Girls Rock, which I believe used to come on VH1, and which was a celebration of Black women. Uh, What was it about Black Girls Rock that made you sense that Black women needed a communal mental health space? So I think watching the award show, it just felt so beautiful, right? Like, and I've never had the privilege of attending one in person, but even just watching it on TV, like, you know, people dancing together and like giving each other, literally giving each other flowers and celebrating one another. And I thought the energy was just so infectious and palpable. And I thought it would be cool to like capture some of this energy around mental health. Like what kind of thing could I offer that would like allow people to come alive and be excited and, you know, embracing one another and discussing mental health. And so after I watched the award show, then therapy for black girls came to me um, and I started blogging on the site and it really kind of has just taken off from there. Yeah. I mean, it's become an extraordinarily um, robust community since you, you started it. Because I'm trying to think of when I first started hearing about you. I think it was like a couple of years ago. And you provided probably the resource that <laughs> is very vital, especially to black women who want to explore their mental health, which is finding a, a black therapist. <laughs> OK, I have a black woman therapist. Other friends of mine who are in therapy have been lucky enough to, to find one. Um, and I find one mine through through word of mouth. There's a particular chapter in your book that I, I really found um, very fascinating when because uh, a lot of therapists that women go to black women go to, especially if they're not black, will not talk about the impact of white supremacy, racism and sexism on their mental health. But this is something that you have really followed and studied for throughout your career. What were some of the challenges of sort of bringing a black woman's experience to the study of psychology and to like inform that in your approach? You know, I don't I don't know that there really have been challenges because, again, I feel like so much of my career development was people pushing me forward and saying, absolutely, go forward and study this. Um, and so that this the chapter that you're referring to is Sisters Over Systems um, that talks about all of the different ways that like our our culture is really not set up to actually foster sisterhood, right? So the idea that there could be only one successful black girl in a company or the idea that we are taught to kind of prioritize romantic relationships as opposed to friendships, like all of that really works against sisterhood. And so in that chapter, I really wanted to talk about, hey, how can we actually view these systems as the problem and not one another? And Jamel, you I feel like in an early iteration of the book, I'm not sure where this got chopped, but I feel like you and Carrie gave us such a beautiful example, Carrie Champion, 
when you were both guests on Red Table Talk and talking about, you know, how you all, the system kind of wanted to pitch you against one another, but you all really kind of latched on to one another and said, hey, we're going to come up the ranks together. Um, and I think I would love to just see more of that because there isn't, it isn't true that only one of us can be successful, but the systems that we often find ourselves in would help us, to, would lead us to believe that when it's just not true. So, yeah, let's unpack, you know, because you said so much stuff in this book about black female friendship dynamics, especially in a group that I, I am so taking to my groups and my sister circles that that I have. But let's start to kind of where the genesis of how a lot of us look at our our black female friendships. It is because uh, you have early on in the book. It was somebody else's experience you were sharing. It was called Messages from Mama, where this young lady named Tamara was talking about sort of the things that she learned from her mother about black women, how to relate to them. So let's start there. How do our mother's relationship with black women, with other black women, how does that influence our own? I think it it sets up a model for what either will be healthy relationships or not so healthy relationships or no relationships at all, right? So if we see our moms flourishing in relationships with girlfriends, if they talk positively about other women, if they encourage us to have relationships with other women, then it is likely that we continue that into adulthood. Um, but in the book, I talk about this story from Tamara where she shares her mother being very critical of other girls in her life, right? And saying like, you can't tell them too much. People always have, you know, ulterior motives. And so those kinds of seeds get planted. And then when we become adults, then we don't trust other women, right? So this is this idea that I'm a, a guy's girl, or, you know, women are not to be trusted. Some of those early seeds that are planted by our mothers, grandmothers, and aunties are what really develop into these kind of, I think, maladaptive relationships or, you know, not wanting to have relationships with other women, because we've not been taught that they could be trusted. Yeah, because it made me think about what I was told from my mother growing up is that my mother did have a lot of untrustworthy friends. Now she was suffering through an addiction. And when you are, you're going to have a lot of untrustworthy friends. And so that was always her message to me was like, they are not to be trusted. You know, you should be careful about who you are around. It's the ones closest to you that hurt you. Like I've never, I've been lucky, fortunate that I've never had to break up with a friend. I've never had to do it. Okay. <laughs> right. I've been really lucky. And you go through a whole ch chapter about what that is like. And I have some questions surrounding that. And so how do we go about the process of breaking those negative perceptions that have formed within us about our friendships with black women? So I think we have to first be open to it because if we've received those messages, we may not even be looking into relationships with other women, right? And so I think an openness to it is first important, but usually it only takes one good relationship with a sister to really kind of change your life, right? So one one person who really connects with you, who really shows you like, oh, this person can be trusted. They have my back. They show up when I need them to. I can trust them with secrets. You know, they are not trying to flirt with my partner, like all of those things, I think become corrective emotional experiences for us. And then it, it makes us realize like, oh, okay, that thing that mom told me wasn't the complete truth, right? So there are other ways that I can have relationships with other Black women. You shared a belief in your, in your book that came from Bell Hooks, that sisterhood is resistance. Why do you believe that's the case? 
So I think it goes back to our earlier conversation around sisters over systems, right? So when we really join forces with one another, there really is no stopping what we can't do with one another. And so I think when we look at the the places that we find ourselves in, you know, combating racism, combating sexism, those kinds of things, it is stronger when we are able to do that together. And so I think, you know, when she talks about it being resistance, it is really about pooling our resources, pooling our knowledge, pooling our time and energies together to fight against a system that's bigger than us. Now, even in as you make in that chapter where you address how the impact of white supremacy and racism and, um, you know, the patriarchy on black women in the workplace in, in particular, and how we might uh, re- relate to one another. Uh, you talk a lot about how we should, as you just said, point and uh, finger point at the system and not necessarily at the person. And yet it's like that Chris Rock joke that he says about how every black woman has another black woman at her job. She can't stay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And uh, I I, I've certainly been in that camp where I've had to, uh, you know, be uh, unfortunately in a work environment with black women like that who seem to be willing to to undermine us at every turn. What is your advice about how we can handle those relationships while also setting some boundaries about treatment and, you know, how we might interact with that type of person in the workplace. You know, I first think it's so unfortunate when we find ourselves in situations with other sisters and and too many of us sadly have a similar story, right? It's typically an older black woman um, who maybe has been at the company longer. And, you know, there's just this resistance to like this new person kind of coming in. And I think about how unfortunate it is that she maybe didn't have like loving, affirming experiences with other black women so that she can't then offer that to someone else. Um, And so even though it is unfortunate for her, that doesn't mean we have to be mistreated, right? So when you talk about setting boundaries, I think that that's really important. And so even if some of those conversations are difficult, I think it's okay to say to someone like, hey, it it makes me feel judged when you talk to me like this, or I don't appreciate when you make comments like that. I think it does, you do still need to speak up for yourself. And also, I think knowing that about this person lets you know how you need to interact with them, right? So you clearly know this person is not an ally for you. And so that means you may need to work around them in some ways or find other people in the space who can support you and be an an ally for you, even if this person is not going to be. Yeah, because I think because of a lot of black women are in corporate media and have kind of run into that situation. In my case, it was definitely somebody who clearly had not been whoever felt like they were a member of the black community. And I felt like a lot of that trauma because of their racial background, it was a mixed racial background because a lot of that trauma of not feeling accepted by us, that then we became the enemy in the workplace environments. Right. And so it's sort of like, yeah, you're bringing all of that to work and it's playing out in different ways that are frankly exposing some nastiness and some cruelty in you. You know, I mean, after a certain point, I just couldn't fuck with that person anymore. And it just kind of is what it is. But we never had that particular conversation. But it never occurred to me to have that particular conversation. And so I wondered after reading your book, if that would have been a constructive or helpful approach. It may not have been something that made them change their mind and say, like, okay, I'm going to become a new person that's all about championing black women overnight. I wonder if it had ever even been brought to their attention that they were like that. 
You know, I think that that's an interesting, you know, idea. And you're right. It may not have changed their mind or their behavior, but I think it could have given them some space to like call out like, hey, I see what you're doing. Right. Because you're right that a lot of when we find ourselves having very strong reactions to other people, most often it is about something about us. It usually is not about them, right? And so you kind of being able to pick up on, okay, this person hasn't ever really felt accepted by Black community, by the Black community, that was something that that person needed to work on. And so you having that conversation with them could have opened up something for them to make them think like, okay, well, what is going on here? Or it would have maybe forced them to say like, okay, why am I treating her that way? You know, so who knows? It could have could have unlocked something. We I guess we'll never know. Yeah, th- th- let's just say that ship has long sailed. But um, <laughs> oh yeah, we're we're done. With we're that. we're done with that one. <laughs> um, I don't want to give away everything in this book because I really want everybody who is listening to buy this book. Uh, again, it's called Sisterhood Heals, and the date is coming out is June twenty seventh. So I need you all to buy a copy of it because I promise you, it's a great guide and just a great. It gives you a lot of wonderful things to think about, a lot of critical things to really think about in your friendships, in your sister circles. But I do want to address this this part of it is that you have a chapter about the four S's of sisterhood. Can you explain to people what those four S's are and what they mean? So the four S's, I think, were my attempt to give language to why our relationships often feel so powerful and so magical. Like, I I think that there is something that that feels very spiritual about the way that we connect with other Black women. And so the four S's were really my attempt to give some language to what often feels intangible. Um, So the four S's are that sisterhood allows us to be seen. It allows us to support and be supported. It allows us to have a greater knowledge of ourselves. And it is, what's the fourth S? I circled them all too. I was like, ah. Oh, it allows us to soften. That is the fourth one. Soften. That's what it is. Okay. <laughs> soften, all right. Yes. I was like, I'm sitting there going through it. I was like, God, what was the fourth S? All right. So and it allows us to soften. In developing these pillars, where did you see these as inflection points for us? Like why were, why were these particular pillars inflection points when it came to developing sisterhood among us? Mm-hmm. So when I think about what healing looks like because of other Black women, these were the things that came to mind most often, particularly the being seen piece, because I think there are so many spaces we find ourselves where we are kind of invisible and we're doing all of this work and like, you know, making great accomplishments and, you know, doing lots of great things and people don't see us, but sisters often see one another, right? So this idea of giving each other flowers and like rooting for one another and like putting out putting each other on I think is really really important because nobody wants to feel invisible like it's it's really important to be seen you know it's funny there's a a little trend going on on TikTok right now where little kids are having like their kindergarten graduation ceremonies and they can't like see their parents in the field but then they finally see their parents and then their faces light up and you know they're very excited um, that somebody's there for them and we don't ever grow out of that Right. Like we don't ever grow out of wanting to be seen and like know that we matter to one another. So I think that that's incredibly healing in terms of the softening piece. I think, again, there's so much armor that we have to put on when we go into spaces, when we go into board meetings and, you know, all these these places we find ourselves. But with each other, we don't have to do that. Right. Like we can kind of figuratively take off our bras and the mask and really just kind of be with one another, being supported and allowing ourselves to support other people. I think it's just 
really important because life is not meant for us to do alone. And so I think in those ways, sisterhood really comes to life. And then it allows us to have greater knowledge of ourselves. And so there are things about us that we cannot know if we are not in relationship with other people, right? So you might not know that you struggle with assertiveness if you're kind of just going through life by yourself because there may not ever be an opportunity for you to assert yourself. And so I think really having strong, intimate relationships with one another really allows for greater greater knowledge of ourselves. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, when you were, uh, I think in that chapter when you were talking about the sort of developmental stages that we have at, you know, from infancy to toddler to preschoolers. Uh, and I think it may have been the same chapter where, you know, you're sort of trying to figure out like, who are you in the friend group? And so I spent like so much of this book reading and been like, who am I in the friend group? Am I the lead? Am I the leader? Am I, am I the wallflower? I don't think I'm that, but like, I was like, like, who am, who am I in this friend group? Friendship group? So, and so thank you for now sending myself through all this, these rigorous <laughs> checkpoints that you have in the book where I'm just like, is this me? Is that who I am when I show up? Mm. You know, uh, one part I also think I love, and I think a lot of women, we've seen this from our women friends is when we get, married or in a relationship and then we drop the sister circle or we just kind of check out of it or we're not as involved as we used to be because as you wrote we are conditioned to believe that the romantic partner is supposed to replace the friends and that's not necessarily according to you healthy why isn't that particularly healthy yeah, it, it's not healthy and it's not sustainable, right? So this idea that one person, your romantic partner is going to be your best friend, your lover, your confidant, like all of these things, like it's just impossible. And I also think it doesn't feel good to think that you're a part of a sister circle that then you're so easily replaced, right? And again, so much of our conditioning, so much of our socialization leads us to believe that, okay, like you have good girlfriends until like you find your partner and then like that is where life really starts. But I think that life, you know, really starts with our girls, right? And that our romantic partners can be a great complement to that. There doesn't need to be a hierarchy. They, they can coexist alongside one another. So there are experiences and memories and things you will create with your romantic partner, but there will also be those things with your girls. And so, you know, life, hi- life happens, right? So of course, you know, there may be some times where your romantic partner needs to be the priority, but that doesn't mean that your sister circle is disregarded. It just may mean that, you know, other things are a priority right now. Yeah, because I think this happens to a, a, a lot of us. A lot of us make that shift in priorities without necessarily, there's a priority. We know that there's going to be a hierarchy, obviously, especially, you know, if, if, if you're married. But a lot of us wind up making that shift because we feel like we have to make that shift, not because we were necessarily asked to make that shift. Does that make sense? What do you mean? Well, by that, I mean, is that I think we go into it understanding like, oh, the hierarchy is supposed to change. So let me change it. Uh, and we, we haven't, you know, like it's not really on the dude to some degree, like a lot of t- or, or whoever is a romantic partner. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they may not even be asking for that. We just have decided to do it because we feel like that's a requirement of the relationship. Mm-hmm. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Like a lot of times our partner is not even asking us to like prioritize them, so to speak. Right. But we've decided like, OK, I am a wife now or I have a long term partner. And so I have to make this shift when there, again, can be space for both of those relationships to flourish. 
Yeah, um, I did appreciate that. Uh, you know, I think one of the keys that you gave in terms of determining, you know, who everybody is in the in the group dynamic is about understanding everybody's attachment styles. Can you discuss uh, some of the attachment styles that we should be kind of on the lookout for? So there's been tons and tons of research about attachment styles, but they really refer to our earliest relationships with, again, again we're going back to childhood, um, our early relationships with our early caregivers. And if our needs were attended to, and like when we cried, somebody came to get us, if we were fussy, somebody tended to us, then we tend to develop a more secure attachment style. But if we were kind of left alone or, you know, nobody really kind of paid attention to us, then our attachment style may be more insecure. And so what we found is that that doesn't end just with our parents. That also continues into relationships with both romantic partners and friends. And so sometimes if people have an insecure attachment style, then they will be a little bit more clingy um, because they are really afraid of being abandoned, right? So they, you know, will kind of uh, maybe text you too often or, you know, like always want to see you in a way that feels a little off-putting. Um, and I think that that's important to think about in a friendship, in a friendship uh, pairing, because you need to know kind of like, who are the people in my circle, right? And and how should I tend to people with different attachment styles that I may find in my sister circle? So if you know someone is a little bit more insecurely attached, then you may need to be a little bit more intentional about making sure that you return text messages or, you know, checking in to just say hi um, so that they do understand that they are cared for. So the part I struggle with, because I've had friends like that, and I didn't understand that as you write about that abandonment is something that really does show up in a lot of, you know, friendships that you have with other women more so than than you would think. And one thing that I struggle with is knowing, like, I struggle with the balance between wanting to give them what they need in the friendship, but also not wanting to feed an insecurity I feel like they need to work on. So how do I strike that balance? I think you can say something like you just said, right? So, you know, letting them know like, hey, I want to be there for you and I want you to know like I really care for you. But I wonder if you've thought about maybe talking with a therapist or someone else about this because this is likely impacting your other relationships as well. So I think especially in a loving friendship, you can give some of that difficult feedback to them that will ultimately maybe help them be better all around. If only it were that easy, Dr. Joy. If only <laughs> <laughs> no, it may not be that easy. But again, I think, you know, and there is, a, again, another part of the book that talks about the importance of difficult conversations, right? Like, I think so many times we are holding things in about our friends because we're afraid that they're going to have their feelings hurt or that they may, that may mean the end of the friendship. But really, in strong friendships, they are able to withstand some of these difficult, more awkward kinds of conversations. And so if you were able to tell that to your girl, like, hey, I notice, you know, it feels like I text you back and, and there's never like enough and I'm feeling like, stretched a little thin. Like, I wonder if we can talk about this. Like, I think that there's a way to have some of these difficult conversations that can, can continue to have the relationship and can even make the relationship closer. Well, Dr. Joy, um, because I have you on, I'm going to put myself on your couch, so to speak, because <laughs> I, uh, I, the, one of the, the, the chapters, I, I think the chapter, maybe my favorite section of the book is when you dealt with how to deal with conflict in the sister circle, because Lord, this is my life. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I got about 5 billion questions. I need to ask her about how to deal with these conflicts. <laughs> so we are going to uh, discuss that. 
And um, naturally, uh, of course, I want to get to an, another term that you also introduced me to, which is healthy cultural paranoia. So we have that and so much more to discuss with the wonderful, incredibly soothing, all-knowing Dr. Joy. So we'll be back in a moment with more from her. to apologize to you all because I should have shared this story for last week's episode of the podcast because we would be heading into Juneteenth but I'll be fully transparent it completely slipped my mind but it's never too late to share knowledge and with that in mind I got a story to share not tell about why maybe we shouldn't consider Juneteenth a celebration but rather a commemoration and an acknowledgement. This is courtesy of activist Kimberly Renee, who you can find on Instagram under the handle at it's Kimberly Renee. Lord, I already know y'all gonna come for me on this one. Juneteenth probably shouldn't be our National Emancipation Day because it ain't going down like folks be saying it went down. I mean, yeah, Major General Gordon Granger did sail into Galveston Bay, Texas that day and formally announced emancipation of the state. But June 19th wasn't unend, nor was it our collective independence. Let's unpack it. So the South loses the Civil War and the Confederate government collapses. Lincoln then issues an executive order, the Emancipation Proclamation, to take effect January 1, 1863. What some don't know is that the proclamation only applied to rebel states, namely Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, North and South Carolina, and Texas. Specifically, it said all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states now and henceforth shall be free. The executive order exempted states occupied by the Union and left slavery untouched in Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, and Missouri, also called border states. These were slaveholding states that just didn't secede from the Union. So on June 19th, 1865, while slavery was federally illegal in Texas, it was legal and would remain so until the 13th Amendment was ratified by a three-fourths majority on December 6th, 1865. Now, the record suggests that New Jersey and Delaware weren't particularly excited about giving up their human property. They were the two northern states to initially reject the amendment, ratifying it sometime later on January 23rd, 1866 and February 12th, 1901, respectively. So just like the 4th of July, not all of us were free, even on Juneteenth. Now, just as a point of clarification, and Kimberly Renee also acknowledged this on her own Instagram page, the Emancipation Proclamation actually was issued in 1863 during the third year of the Civil War. And I think it was just some clumsy wording because she made it seem like the Emancipation Proclamation was issued after the Civil War. And one final thing, despite how it has been characterized in the history books, Abraham Lincoln wanted to preserve the Union. And yes, he thought slavery was morally wrong, but he did not think black people could ever coexist with white folks, nor did he think we were deserving of full political and social equality. His original plan, once slavery ended, was to send us to either Central America, the Caribbean, or back to Africa. True story. Look it up. And now back to more with Dr. Joy. So, Dr. Joy, as I mentioned before the break, the conflict in the sister circle. It's going to be the death of me. I really, I'm not even kidding. Um, so, you know, and, and, and I'm, I was so glad that you addressed this in your book. And, and uh, because I think this happens to a lot of group friendships uh, among black women. So where I always find myself is the person who is asked to take a side. If there's conflict in the group between two people that ain't got shit to do with me that I didn't start, <laughs> somehow it becomes my responsibility to take a side. And I just do not know how to handle it when it's two people beefing in the crew, particularly if I've talked and listened to them both. I've heard their side of the story and they're telling me like 
two different stories. So I have, there's some conflict that is in a, a sister circle that I have. And I have thought in my mind, like, I want to bring everybody together and just kind of get it, lay it out on the table. But maybe because I've seen too many reality shows, because every time they do that, somebody wind up getting a drink tossed on them. Right. It doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. <laughs> and I know that if I say, hey, y'all, we should all get together. Let's just squash whatever beef is 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 amongst the group. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to be like, nah, I don't want to. Da, da, da. People are going to avoid the conversation. So I was like, oh, so should I be the one that invites everybody? Doesn't tell them what they're about and do kind of like a guerrilla style intervention. I'm not sure. So... <laughs> As the person who didn't create the conflict in the group, and when you're being asked to pick pick a side, I just don't know how to handle it. So I just laid all that in your lap. Please fix it for me. Right, <laughs> right. Now, now you want me to pick a side. Now I want you to pick a Fix it. I'm not saying pick a side, but I'm like, I just, I am really bad at handling that. I don't even want to say that I'm really bad, but... Some of my friends where this has happened in the past, I've taken offense to this. They tried to uh, accuse me of being disloyal because I didn't pick a side. Well, you didn't tell such and such they were wrong. And I'm like, I don't even know what the wrong is because y'all telling me two different things. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't really want to jump in the middle of that. But I want, I feel like a lot of times with women, we give our romantic partners way more leeway and way more compassion and way more grace than we do our friends we do like sometimes you could do one thing or a couple things and then that friendship is just over and it's over as you talk about in the book by ghosting by like they just stop dealing with each other and then that's it and then then when I have a function and I want to invite the disagreeable parties then it's awkward for me and I'm like I didn't even do shit how did I now why am I in it why am I in it how did I get here so anyway <laughs> I lay this all on your lap Dr. Joy because clearly I needed to get that off my chest so clearly I'm glad you did I'm trying to think of a workable solution about how to resolve conflict in a group dynamic even if it may not lead to them being friends like they once were but I at least want us to be able to be around each other and then not be like that tension in the room. So one, I find it really interesting that you find yourself in this situation multiple times. So that that to me speaks to like, there's some role that you are playing in your groups that people kind of see you as this like, um, so you probably are the leader in a lot of your groups, right? Like people kind of go to you <laughs> to, to kind of be the one to break the tie, so to speak, right? So I think that that is telling. Um, and I think it's something for you to consider about whether you actually enjoy. I do not. I do not enjoy this role. You're like, I'm good to be the one planning the the vacations but i do not like this role in terms of you know choosing a side mm-mm, mm-mm. can i be can i be the wallflower can i be the wallflower i'd rather be that obviously not they're they're dictating that you are being this and i also agree with you like this kind of uh intervention that nobody knows about where you kind of get them both to your house and they don't know the circumstances is probably not a good idea that's not <laughs> Not how we want to have. I'll throw that one out the window. Okay, fine. (laughs) Not how we want to have difficult conversations. But I do think you can go to them and say, this feels really uncomfortable for me. Like, I am not sure why I'm being asked to take a side when I love you both. Right. And I do wish that we could all come together to talk about this with one another, even if it means y'all still feel the same way that you did. Like, is there a way we could come together to try to discuss this as a group? 
But that also may mean bringing in somebody else, right? So there are therapists who do like friendship therapy or like, is would they be open to talking with the therapist or someone else about what happened and how to move forward? And again, that may not mean that we are resuming the friendship, but can we be in the similar space or the same space with one another because you're going to be having events or things like that? I do think something like that, if they are open to it, would be a great idea. But I do think it's important for you to first voice that you don't like being put in this position and that it makes things awkward for you. Yeah, and maybe that and I have struggled to do that because, of course, I want to be supportive. And when you're dealing with maybe, um, you know, multiple friends who you, you know, you want to show up for them. But I feel like they're asking me to do something that's like putting me in a bit of an impossible situation. And when it gets flipped back on me, like, oh, if it were reverse, you know, like if anybody that say you ain't fool with, I wouldn't fool with either. I ain't ask you to do that. And I wouldn't ask you to do that. (laughs) Right. Like I would not. Right. Would not. If you chose to do that on your own, that's on you. But like, I wouldn't do that. Like, I just be like, I don't feel with that person. And that's for me and that person to to work out if there is something to be worked out or at the very least come to an understanding. Like, you know, I don't fool with you. We good. Let's just go our separate directions. So that's, you know, one part of it. The other part that I think can be tough in group dynamics is when you know one friend has a problem with another friend, but they have not told the friend what they have a problem about, but yet it shows up when we're in the group dynamic. So how, what is the language I need to use to maybe encourage them to solve the problem? (laughs) So is it that you know that they have a problem with the other friend because they've told you, or you've just observed it no they told me and they told me they laid out exactly what the problem was and it was something that was building something that had been it started with one incident they noticed other behavior and much to something else you talk about in your book they started building a narrative in their head Mm. and now the narrative's taken root and now i'm like it's gotten too big so i'm just like i wish she would just talk to this person and tell them But I don't know if they're, I just don't know the proper way or the proper language to use to tell them like, yo, y'all need to handle this. Mm -hmm. Or you do rather because the other person has no idea. (laughs) The other person has no idea. And you are so right. Like when we kind of start trying to build a case and like make up this whole story in our heads about why someone has done something else, then it really gets away from us. Right. So, you know, ideally what we would want to have happen is if, the first time somebody like hurts your feelings or offends you or whatever is to actually say to them like that hurt like ouch that hurt me um because then you give people an opportunity to like let you know like okay here's what i was thinking and i apologize i didn't mean to hurt your feelings or whatever it is but now that we are here i think you know one way to approach it would be to go to the friend who has you know divulged this information and say hey i don't know if you realize this but you may think you're kind of like hiding how you feel about whatever the situation is but you're not and here's what i've seen and i really feel like it is impacting our dialogue dynamic. And I think this is important to think about because, you know, everybody has like individual relationships with one another as a part of the group, but the group is also like an entity of its own. And so when you have these kinds of subgroupings and things like are going awry, it impacts the entire group, which is what you're saying right now. So now you're like, oh, I don't even know if we need to be together because I know she got some, you know, like you know, hidden feelings about her. So I think the best thing for you to do would be to go to this friend and say, hey, you know, what what would it take for you to share this with this person so that we can maybe have some resolution here? Yeah, because 
what I fear is that if the other person notices that the behavior has changed with the friend and they're like, mm, why are they acting this way toward me or whatever? Then I'm going to be put back in the middle. Now, why am I in it? <laughs> That's the fear. It's, so, so we're back at square one is that you have now found yourself in the middle of it. And, you know, Jamel, it may come to a point where you have to kind of share stuff with the group. Right. So if, if you go to this person and she's not willing to say how she feels, you are also well within your rights. I think when y'all are hanging out to say, hey, I've noticed like it feels like something is going on here and really just giving voice to the elephant in the room, so to speak, so that you can kind of put the cards on the table so that you can possibly get to a resolution or not. But everybody kind of tiptoeing around one another, like it really is stymieing the intimacy in the group in a lot of ways because y'all are really not being honest with one another. Oof, that is such a word. And I get so, um, in some ways, jealous because I see how, and maybe this is just the dynamic of men. I see how my husband is and his friendship groups, and they are totally different. Like, they have a beef with somebody, um, because one thing my my husband doesn't do, and I think it's like an amazing trait and superpower that he has. Like, if a friend comes to him and says, like, yo, I got a problem with such and such because they did this and that, and, and maybe it's trying to vent. And he'll tell them like, yo, if they ask me, I'm going to tell them. So you either you tell them or <laughs> you better talk to them. Like in the story, and I'm like, God, that's such an amazing superpower, you know, and he's because he has two friends um, in his circle that do not get along. And he's told both of them like, hey, y'all need to talk. And if y'all don't, it is what it is. But I do tell him that it, what happens is like the people who wind up being in the middle, it winds up being more taxing on you because then yes. when you have events or you have things you want to do, then you have to start thinking like, well, I don't know if such and such want to be around such and such. And like, I ain't going through that anymore. I, I'm liberating myself from the middle. There you go. I'm not Switzerland. <laughs> Leave me alone. Okay. <laughs> but you know, I want to go back to that point because you called it a superpower. And in some ways, I think we think about it like men's relationship dynamics tend to be pretty different. But it's not actually a superpower. It's a skill that we can practice just like any other skill. And it is a skill of having difficult conversations. And I think what happens as women is that we tend to avoid these difficult conversations because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We're afraid of what they're going to say. Like we don't want them to, you know, not like us. But what ends up happening is what you're talking about is that then we can't move forward because we're not saying the thing that needs to be said. And so even if it is awkward, even if it feels brutal in some ways, we have to get those things on the table if we have any chance of actually continuing with having a a healthy sister circle. Do you think some of that comes from the fact that we know what it feels like to be maybe in that situation or be the, you know, like we know what it feels like to be hurt in a friendship. So we don't want to ever duplicate that feeling for any of our friends. Is that where it comes from a right from a place of safety, even though we're not really doing that. I think from a place of safety, but I also think a place of socialization. Like I think as women, we are socialized to kind of keep difficult things to ourselves and like not hurt anybody's feelings. And it, it really ends up hurting us more. Right. So is it more hurtful for this friend to know that like y'all two are having these conversations about like something that she's done or would it be more hurtful to have the conversation? I think in some ways it's more hurtful for her to not know that this thing that has happened is impacting how people feel about her. You know, another uh, part of this book that I loved, and clearly, as you can uh, see, I loved all the parts of the book. So I'm going to say another part. I'll say (laughs) another portion of this book that I thought was really helpful was about embracing the parts of ourselves that are not so lovable. That really hit me like a 
bolt of lightning because I know I haven't learned to do that. So what would you suggest as ways that we can figure out how we can embrace these parts of ourselves, the pettiness we, we, that we feel, maybe the jealousy, the envy? How do we learn how to embrace those emotions? I think we have to first start by allowing space for those emotions to come up, right? Because oftentimes what happens is that we have like a twinge of jealousy or we feel petty and we try to shut it down instantly because we maybe feel ashamed about it, right? But emotions are not good or bad. They are just information. They're just, you know, something telling us that something needs tending to or there's something going on. And so I, I think our first step is really creating the space and allowing space for those emotions to come up for us and then paying attention to what they're trying to tell us. Right. So that may mean spending some time journaling about it. That may mean talking with a therapist about it or talking with a friend about it. But I think we have to embrace all parts of ourselves because we're not just the happiness and rainbows and sunshine. Like there are also these parts of us that are also human because we're not robot, right? We're not robots. And so when we feel a little jealous of, you know, something a friend has had, it doesn't mean that you don't want the friend to have it. It may mean that you, there's something lacking in your own life that you would like to have, or um, there's some area of your life you need to attend to more or need more attention. And so I think if we allow it, then those emotions actually tell us information about ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, you, you break this down quite well in your book about dealing with friends who when something good is happening in your life and they're struggling to be happy for you, like not taking that as a betrayal of the friendship, but more or less like understanding what that person is going through. Uh, Cause it reminded me of, you know, a few years ago, I had a friend that was going through some struggles and at the time career struggles. And at the time things were going really good for me. And they never told me about the struggles that they were having until later. And I, I felt like I I wonder it was like, huh, was I being a bad friend by not picking up on this? Or what was it where they felt like they couldn't say to me like, hey, this is happening at the same time, something awesome is happening for you. And I guess if you're on the other side of it and the person that is in the position where something great is happening for you and you can sense a friend is not as happy, how can you show up for your friend, even though to some degree it's going to hurt you too, knowing like, damn, they can't even be happy for me. Like, how do you sort of move past that part of it to get to showing up for them. Yeah. So I think, again, it is about not taking things personally, right? So is it that they're not happy for you or that they are also just really disappointed with their own situation, right? Like, can we hold space for both of those things to be true at the same time? Like, I'm very happy that things are going well for you. And I'm also really sad and disappointed that I haven't quite found my thing yet. And so I think if you are the friend who, you know, has success or things going on, it's okay to kind of make space to check in and say like, hey, you know, I understand that these things are happening for me. I want to check in with what's going on with for you as well. Like, I know you've been struggling or, you know, like, is there something that I can help with? Um, because again, it doesn't have to mean that they are, you know, praying for your downfall. It could mean that there that two things can be true at the same time. And so there's ways for us to celebrate you, but also to pay attention to, you know, how they might need a hand up. Uh, how much have you done sort of group friendship therapy like what you're saying like bringing in a professional to like intervene with the friends that can't get along like have you had to do that and, and what has that experience been like I have not had I've not done any friendship you have therapy. not had to do that no okay. I've not had to do that but I have done group therapy right um and I've talked with friends without the other friends you know kind of coming into the room um but it is something I want to do more of because like you've mentioned right like I think that these kinds of things happen often and people don't understand like well how do I get out of this like how do I find myself out of this you know 
stuck place where people are asking me to play Switzerland, right? Um, you know, I think it, it is a valuable service. So I definitely hope to do more of it. I'm sure you get asked this a lot uh, in your line of work with, you know, diagnosing and hearing people's problems all the time and and really uh, being the voice of reason in a, in a lot of uh, situations. So what does your mental self-care look like? So a lot of that is working with my own therapist. Um, so every Tuesday at 2.15, that is where you will find me in the Zoom room with my therapist um, because it it is a lot. And even though I don't do a lot of practice anymore, I have definitely found with the kind of work that I'm doing, like the book, and we talked about this when you were on Therapy for Black Girls, introduce all these new stressors that I didn't necessarily knew that I had, like around like perfectionism and, you know, like what does it look like to be more visible and, you know, have people critique you and those kinds of things. Um, and so working with my own therapist around those kinds of things has been really, really helpful for me. You know, I, I think an observation that you've made many, many times in your work and on your podcast and in your speaking engagements that you do is about how strength and resilience, while great, can be almost our enemy to some degree. There was one part, I'm going to read it real quick that you said in the book. Uh, I think it's early on, it's in chapter, it's in the first few chapters. And I had to stop and like, just kind of diagnose it for a minute. Uh, you wrote recent research expands on this issue as it relates to black women by noting that, quote, as a result of continuously conjuring resilience as a response to, to physical and psychological hardships, many black women have mastered the art of portraying strength while concealing trauma, a balancing act often held in high esteem among black women. And some of us even applaud her for being strong when the truth is She's strong and avoidant. I was like, Dr. Joy, if you don't get out my life and out my business right now, <laughs> we going to fight. <laughs> All right. So as someone who you just had to read without even knowing you was reading me, I want to stop using resilience and strength as a shield. How do I do this? Mm, I feel like that is such a hard thing to unpack and unlearn because so many of us have been doing it for so long, right? Like how often do we get praise for just picking ourselves back up and dusting ourselves off and getting back on the bike or whatever it is, right? Um, and so I think for a lot of us, it is paying attention to like what we're telling younger people in our lives about strength and resilience. And while those things are important, like you mentioned, right? Like resilience is really the ability to bounce back after difficult situations. Like we need some of that, but I think it is the over-reliance on resilience that really strips us of our humanity, right? So we don't say ouch when a thing hurts or we won't ask for help or let people know that we're struggling. And so I think it, it starts small with small ask, right? So can you give me a ride from the airport or can you be honest with a friend about something they've done that offended you? I think starting really small and then getting larger is, is a great way to do that. But I also think it's important to be gentle with yourself because again, for many of us, these this is something that we've developed over many, many years. And so it's not something that you're going to be able to turn off tomorrow so we should start maybe with like sort of small victories and then kind of maybe we can work our way up because you're right I mean this has been learned behavior since I was a kid I mean the first person who tells you this is your mother right it's like all the time it's like we you know black women don't cry why because we don't have time that's why <laughs> right you just gotta suck it up and keep moving but again I think in our sister circles we can also practice that with one another right like how often have you had a conversation and your sister asked you like how are you and then she stops and she's like no how are you really 
right? I think that kind of interaction also forces us to kind of let go of some of that strength and resilience that we have to hold up for other people because we can be honest with one another. So I think in your sister circles, also practicing being intentional and holding space for one another in that way is a good way for us to exercise how to take off those capes. It's very difficult to unlearn certain behavior because we've heard it our entire lives about staying strong, staying resilient, all of those kinds of things. Where it shows up for us can be damaging because I don't want to be somebody who's not vulnerable. I don't want to be somebody who has a certain exterior around them because I thought about it one day and I don't think any of my friends have ever seen me cry, like not one time. It's really more of a reflection of me. I've seen several of them cry and moments that certainly dictated that because I do have a hard time expressing, hey, I need help in this area or I'm not doing so good because of this and whether they ask me to or not. But maybe I unconsciously took on the role of being the strong friend and I didn't really intend to do that. Wow. And so I'm trying to figure out ways that I can unlearn the behavior of being the strong friend. So that I don't always have two friends who are beefing coming to me talking about fix it. And I'm like, no, I don't want to fix it. You know, that's above my pay grade. That's <laughs> that's above my station. You know what I mean? Right. But, you know, I feel like, honestly, the book, I want people to use the book as a tool like that in their sister circles. Right. So if you are all reading this chapter about like, oh, who am I in the group? Mm -hmm. Then. You are using my words in a way to kind of have this difficult conversation in your sister circle, right? So if we can identify who we all are in the group, and then that means we can then have a conversation about like, okay, well, how do we support the person who is the leader? And does she actually enjoy being the leader or does she feel resentful about that? Which in some ways I hear you saying, I'm resentful that y'all keep putting me in this place, right? And so I think having those kinds of conversations are what really allow for vulnerability um, and I also want to to tell you, Jamel, like, are you somebody who is a crier? Because vulnerability doesn't always look like tears, right? Like if you're somebody who like doesn't typically cry, that may not look like what vulnerability is for you. That is also true. You know, maybe it's just me. But when thinking about vulnerability, I think about, you know, my husband and our relationship. I probably cry more in this relationship. And that's not indicative that it's some kind of traumatic relationship, but I've probably cried more in our relationship than I ever have in any relationship I've ever had outside of the relationship I have with my mother. Right. And I only count my mother because obviously as a kid, I got, you know, whoopings growing up. So that made sense. But with my husband, this is definitely the relationship that I've definitely cried the most. And I don't think any of my friends that are in my current circle have ever seen me do that. But some of it is because, as one of my very good friends once told me, I default to suffering in silence. And I just laughed <laughs> when she said that because, yes, I probably do. Mm -hmm. And so I'm desperately trying to break that very awful, awful habit. OK, now enough of me on the couch because we have to wrap this up. <laughs> Dr. Joy, thank you for dealing with all of my friendship drama. Oh, you're welcome. Now I have some new directives <laughs> going forward. So before I get you out of here, there is a game that I play with every guest who appears on Jamel Hills Unbothered. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with that.
And now it's your turn to officially be in the hot seat. Now, just warning you, this is where the controversy happens. So we're going to get you in some trouble, Dr. Joy. <laughs> That's right. Your existence is a little too peaceful for my liking. Uh, okay? So uh, let's start off with this one. Uh, look, I know you're a big podcast consumer. So The Read or Hidden Brain? Ooh, those are two of my favorites. I would have to go with The Read, though. One, it is just hilarious. But also, I think that they have done so much to decrease stigma related to mental health by talking about their own personal journeys in the Black community that I absolutely have to go with them. I know. <laughs> okay. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing this group's name right. But are you taking the bangers or foreign exchange? I feel like y'all been doing y'all research. Y'all know the things that I really, really love. I might have done a little research. <laughs> Oh, and, and by the way, before you answer the question, I cannot tell you how much it did my heart proud knowing that you are a foreign exchange fan as well, because I am a stan of foreign exchange. I hear you. I think I'm going to have to go with foreign exchange um, because that was like fundamental to my husband and I's relationship. So he actually introduced me to foreign exchange and a large part of our dating was like going across the country, like finding foreign exchange shows. So they have a real sentimental place in my history. So I'm going to go with foreign exchange. Now, while my husband didn't introduce me to them, I introduced him to them. Oh, but he did take me on a great date. One of the best dates he's ever taken me on. It was on Valentine's Day. We went to see foreign exchange in our hometown of Detroit. And so uh, Fonte, who is a friend of the podcast, you know, I'm just so obsessed with them. I love him. And so, yeah, they're my group. All right, on to the next one. Plastic off the sofa or cuff it? So Church Girl is actually my favorite. So that you didn't put me in too tough of a situation. Oh, oh, okay, okay. I think of those two, I'm going to have to go with cuff it. Okay. Um, are you going to see Beyonce this summer? Absolutely, absolutely. I will be in Atlanta at the show on, I think, the Monday night show. Oh, my goodness. That is going to be something else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And finally, because you often give so many examples from both of these shows, Girlfriends or Insecure? I think I'm going to have to go with Girlfriends because I feel like that was like foundational in my thinking about Black women's relationships with one another. And Insecure, of course, furthered that. But Girlfriends was the OG for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you because you wrote about this in, in the book. I, I mean, they pretty much spent what felt like the entire season or a whole season in Insecure focusing on the breakdown of Issa and Molly's friendship. And I'd never seen black women's friendships portrayed in that particular way. And it resonated with a lot of us because we've either seen it or we've experienced it. And so I thought it was really wonderful how it showed up in that series. Joan gets a bad rep. <laughs> oh, and I'm glad you provided a defense of Joan because Joan gets a very bad rap as being a terrible friend. Yes, I agree. Definitely. Well, Dr. Joy, thank you so much for spending this time with me. And as I've said throughout this podcast, please cop her book, Sisterhood Heals, The Transformative Power of Healing in Community. This book is phenomenal. And I think in the middle of the book, you also have some kind of health survey. And I definitely want to fill that out. Mm -hmm. Sisterhood health survey. Yeah, definitely want to fill out sisterhood health survey. And your book actually got me thinking about doing something I hadn't done in a long time, which is 
journaling because you asked very reflective and critical questions after every chapter. Yes. Uh, I had some trauma around journaling, but that's for a session I'd have to pay you for to disclose that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, that's beside the point. But yeah, I mean, it actually got me to thinking about journaling because journaling was a very big part of my life growing up. And you actually gave me the confidence to return to it. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for this book. And I'll let you know how these friend situations turn out. Please do. Keep me posted. All right, everybody. Dr. Joy is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. The great urban philosopher Jay-Z rapped on The Takeover, don't argue with fools because people from a distance can't tell who is who. Now, I thought about that line a lot in the last week after reading that Spotify podcaster Joe Rogan challenged vaccine scientist Peter Hotez to debate fledgling politician, harebrained conspiracy theorist, and unfortunately presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Rogan offered to donate $100,000 to Hotez's charity of choice if he agreed to this debate. And Elon Musk, the petulant boy wonder, offered to add another $150,000 to the pot, turning this into a full-fledged circus that got so bad that people were confronting Hotez at his home about debating Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Joe Rogan's podcast. And fuck it, I'm bothered. Now, I don't need to regurgitate some of the truly stupid things that Joe Rogan has said about the vaccine on his podcast, but there's been a lot. But this isn't about him as much as it's about the fact that we've become a nation that's entirely too comfortable living and validating our own stupidity. Social media has made it far too easy for people who do a couple Google searches to think they're on the same level as someone who is credentialed and a literal expert in their field. I mean, during the pandemic, everybody suddenly became an infectious disease expert. When Brittany Griner was being wrongfully detained in a Russian prison, everybody suddenly was a foreign policy expert. It happens so much and it is terribly annoying. Now, in one corner, we have Hotez, founding dean and chief of the Baylor College of Medicine National School of Tropical Medicine. He's a professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor. Also, Hotez was part of a Nobel Prize nominated team of scientists who helped create an affordable, easy-to-make coronavirus vaccine. In the other corner, you have Kennedy Jr., an environmental lawyer by trade, who, if not for being the son of Senator Robert F. Kennedy and the nephew of slain President John F. Kennedy, would never have been allotted his two minutes and 57 seconds of fame. The Kennedy family's official position has been, yeah, he cool, yeah, he family and all, but he that crazy-ass relative that we just let bring the paper plates and red solo cups to the cookout. And that's it. The reason they don't fuck with him like that is because he says shit like vaccines cause autism, even though there has never been a shred of data that supports that claim. And just a small detail to add here, Kennedy Jr. admitted his own kids are vaccinated. He also called 5G technology a threat to human life. And generally speaking, he very much sounds like a guy who probably believed the radiation from microwaves caused cancer. So. You have an acclaimed doctor who has saved countless lives versus somebody who believes Jay-Z and Beyonce are part of the Illuminati. Hotez offered to come on Rogan's podcast to offer up helpful, accurate vaccine information 
but he refused to debate Kennedy Jr. because uh, he has common sense. The people that believe Kennedy Jr. aren't going to change their mind, for one. And if you debate stupid, then you are also elevating stupid to your level. A non-scientist, non-vaccine expert is not who Hotez should be wasting his time with. But this is where we are. It's why we have parents believing they can design an educational curriculum better than actual educators. It's why we have self-proclaimed NBA Twitter experts arguing with players about a game they can't begin to comprehend at their level. Google and social media have their advantages, but one big disadvantage is that it's empowered the loud and wrong to feel as if they are on the same level of people who have dedicated their lives to their work. I'm certainly not saying that we should follow everything an expert says at face value or never question research or what we've been told, but there's a fine line between asking critical questions and arrogantly believing fat meat ain't greasy, even after a world-renowned chef tells you it is. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Spry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it.